It's great to have you guys with us, and it's good to have the online crew watching um, from home as well. If you're joining us um, online and uh, haven't been with us or missed uh, last week, we're doing a brand new series called Proof of Life, and we're in week two. And Proof of Life um, is looking at the Sermon on the Mount uh, from the Gospel of Matthew in, in uh, Matthew chapter 5. So uh, if you have your Bible, slip over to Matthew 5. That's where we'll be for most of the day. Um, so just a quick recap from last week. Um, and uh, Frank did a great job of just telescoping us in right to the text of Matthew 5. Um, and uh, the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew's longest monologue. And he starts with these beatitudes, these blessings upon the people who have gathered there to listen to him. And these beatitudes, as Frank shared, was very ethical values that define what it looks like to live as a citizen in the kingdom. They're countercultural. They don't come naturally to us. And they also invite and yield persecution. But those who practice them are salt and light to the world. So I want to take a minute to telescope us out. We looked at all those things last week. So kind of moving back to see the bigger picture of what's going on in Matthew we see that there's a picture that Matthew has that Jesus Christ is the son of man, the son of God, and he wants for humanity to flourish once again. And if we have that picture in our mind that, that, that the son of God, that God himself, that Jesus Christ wants humanity to flourish again, we're taken back to the garden. We're taken back to creation. Where God, before sin, tells Adam and Eve to flourish. And we see God was above man, and man followed God's commands, and man was over creation. But then we see in Genesis 3, what happens is creation, a serpent, dictates to man that he should no longer follow God. And so man puts himself above God. And this, is, this order is flipped. It was God, man, creation. And with sin and the fall, it now became creation, man, and God. And what Matthew is trying to do from this sermon is once again invite his readers in to the right order of the universe and the world. That God is on high teaching mankind so they can flourish in creation. This is the big picture of what's going on in Matthew. So um, this whole sermon takes place on a mountain. If you remember your Old Testament history, mountains are kind of a big deal. To Matthew, they're a big deal as well. In the Old Testament, there was Sinai where God gave his law. It was a mountain covered in darkness and lightning and, and thick smoke and fire. God met his people, gave his law there. And, and what Matthew is doing in Matthew chapter 5, is saying Jesus is sitting down on top of a mountain. Oh, don't you guys see it? God is once again giving his people instruction and life that they can follow it and flourish. Kings also, in the ancient Near East in Bible times, when they're sitting down, 
to rule and write laws and to teach, they sit down on the throne. When they're ready to judge, they rise up. And so in Matthew chapter 5, we see Jesus Christ sitting down on the mountain, being the king and teacher of Israel and all humanity again. So Matthew sees Jesus Christ as the son of God, the new king. He's going to lead people into a new exodus. He's going to be a new Moses for people, but not just those things. Those are just a type. He's actually going to be God himself. And does this mean there's a new law? Because that's oftentimes, and even in the early church and the critics of the church, said, well, Christians, they just give up the law. They don't care about morality. There's just grace. Christians do whatever they want and say that there's grace. And that's not what Jesus was bringing. And so we're going to look at the law. and We're going to look at maybe a misunderstood Jesus. So we're going to start in Matthew 5, um, verse 17. But I'll give you guys two questions, two questions that my hope is we, we answer them this morning. We tackle them, we wrestle with them, we talk about them. The first question is this, what is the purpose of the law? What is the purpose of the law? And the second question that we wrestle with is how does Matthew know? How does Matthew know what the purpose of the law is. How does Matthew even know what the Sermon on the Mount is? Matthew doesn't even become a disciple or follower of Jesus until Matthew chapter 9. So this is going on before. So how do we even know that Matthew knows what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount? Let's start reading in Matthew 5. Starting in verse 17. Don't assume that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For I assure you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches people to do so, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So several thoughts from this passage. Uh, Jesus is not bringing novelty He's not trying to say that he's doing away with, he's discarding the Old Testament. But rather, Jesus is saying, I'm here to bring ancient truth. Jesus wants to teach from the law as the right teacher with the right interpretation. Because far too long, wrong interpretation has happened. And isn't that sometimes our case? That's my case sometimes. Because I'll interpret something wrongly or I'll think something wrongly. 
And I have to come and encounter Jesus so he can change my interpretation. Verse 17, um, at the end of it, has a very powerful word um, in, in the text, but to fulfill. Jesus Christ has come to fulfill. And that, that's a pretty big word. If we're saying he's not abolishing it, he's fulfilling, then what in the world does, does that word mean? Um, it's the seventh time Matthew's used that word fulfill so far in his gospel. Um, each of the six previous times, it was always connected to an Old Testament messianic prophecy. It was always connected to the Messiah coming. And this time, it's not connected to the Messiah coming. It's actually connected to what Jesus is actually saying. I will fulfill it. It's this beautiful picture of Matthew revealing that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one now bringing everything to fulfillment. The Old Testament, six times previously, had scripture about the Messiah. But now Jesus says, I will bring the law to fulfillment. There's some other uses of this word, fulfillment, to make full. Um, and this was kind of a, a fisherman's term or uh, a marketplace term to cram the net full. Uh, I don't know about you guys. I like buffets. Sometimes you can buy a to-go box for a buffet. <laughs> Come on. You want to cram it full of everything. That's kind of what fulfill means, to cram things full. Um, another meaning is to fill up the soul. Uh, a third meaning is to render complete or perfect. Uh, to accomplish or carry through. Fifth is a, an, an interesting meaning to fulfill an office. And last, there's this meaning that means to, to pay completely. And it's another marketplace terminology. I don't know about you guys. Um, I, um, my wife and I, we, we uh, had our first son. He came about 10 and a half weeks early. And um, after insurance, our, um, our debt was a little over $12,000 that the hospital was saying you owe us. And um, so, we're, yeah, we're like, sure, we'll just write a check for that. Um, we put it on a payment plan. Um, we talked to the hospital, found a little bit of aid. But it was a payment plan, and it took us two and a half years to pay off that debt. But we're so thankful for our son. It was totally worth it. But I remember that, that day that I called in to make the last payment. Um, and uh, it was actually like three payments left. But I was like, I'm just getting rid of this right away. Like, I, I don't want to see this bill again. So I called in. I paid like the last three payments in one. And they gave me a confirmation number. And it was just so awesome. And paid in full. And I got this confirmation number. I don't even remember it. But it was lots of letters and lots of numbers linked to my account that this debt had been paid in full. And it was a wonderful feeling. The debt is paid in full. See, Jesus is coming to make sure that the debt that the law requires 
for sin is going to be paid in full. In verse 20, he tells us that we're going to need greater righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees. And we really wrestle with this because Jesus attacked the scribes and Pharisees for their righteousness all the time. And now he's telling us that we need greater righteousness. And what Jesus is trying to do, he's trying to say that the righteousness of the Pharisees is this external, visible thing. But the righteousness that God wants is this internal, invisible thing. And that righteousness must be greater. And so we must ask ourselves, well, how how then do we have this internal, invisible righteousness? So we started out by telescoping in and then telescoping out. And now we're going to telescope back in to what Jesus says are six statements from the law. And he starts these things. By saying, you have heard it said to those of old, but I say it to you. And I just want to let you guys know, I think this is what Jesus is trying to say. You see, the things of old that were said, they were God's word. They were the revelation of God. But what had happened to people over time is they had just externalized those things. They just followed them from a distance, but they never internalized them. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to teach you what it looks like to follow the law from inside of the law. From the perspective of the lawgiver who can also fill you to be able to flourish and sustain the law through obedience. And so these statements that Jesus is going to get to, the law says this, Jesus is going to say this. And then the third thing, Jesus is going to give us practical application. I love it. Jesus is sitting down as the king, giving people practical application for what it looks like to follow him from the inside of the law. So let's read starting in verse 21. We're uh, going to start um, with one of the Ten Commandments um, on murder. This is what it says. You've heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And whoever says to his brother, fool, will be subject to the Sanhedrin. But whoever says, you moron, will be subject to hellfire. So if you're offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother, and then come back and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him. Or your adversary will hand you over to the judge, the judge to the officer, and you'll be thrown into prison. I assure you, you will never get out of there until you've paid the last penny. Jesus quotes several Old Testament passages, Exodus 20, 13, Deuteronomy 5, 17. And he's trying to get to the inside of the law. And what Jesus is saying on the inside of the law is what matters. And you have anger in your hearts. And though you might not have ever killed your brother, your anger is consuming you. Your anger is leading you to say, 
things that should not be said. And your anger is preventing reconciliation. God told the same thing to Cain. Cain didn't deal with his anger. And as a result, he murdered his brother Abel. God is saying what matters on the inside is anger. And then Jesus gives three practical applications. The first is this. Jesus uses these words, fool and moron. Words deface the image and likeness of God in humanity. One of the things that's interesting, if you study history, particularly if you study the rise of Nazi Germany, you'll find out that, that words against the Jews, language against the Jews, wasn't like they just started to build concentration camps like that and throw people in them. The rhetoric against the Jews actually started in the middle of the 1920s and late 1920s as their economy was struggling, as the world's economy was struggling, and they began to blame other people. They blamed the poor and the Jews and the cripples and the disabled. If only they could get rid of those people in society, then society could flourish. The language actually pivoted against people and it led to anger and hate and murder. And what Jesus is saying is this, that the words that come out of your mouth, fool and moron, you're telling humanity made in the image and likeness of God that they are vain and empty and worthless. So it's no wonder at some point that you will kill them if given the opportunity. If your language is revealing your heart that people are worthless and vain, then it's very easy to exterminate them. There's anger in your heart. The second thing that Jesus talks about is relationships matter. And so we are brought into this situation where someone goes to, to worship God and to bring a gift at the altar, but then remembers that there's a matter of reconciliation that they need to address, that their brother has something against them. And Jesus said, hey, make sure you reconcile with your brother first. Leave your gift, come back to worship. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Make sure that there's peace and unity among brothers. And, and I think the church... Um, now, especially uh, a part of the church, a distinct part of the church um, is really grasping that and is really excited about peace and forgiveness, about reconciliation. Many of them call themselves social justice warriors, that they're working to reconcile the, the places that the church hasn't been, to reconcile racism, to reconcile poverty and homelessness and, and to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And they're doing such a great job. They're out there reconciling, but they forget to do the second thing that this says. It says, once you've reconciled, come back to worship. And there's so many people right now, especially in the church, who, who are filled up with this idea of reconciliation with social justice, but they're not coming back to worship. And so what really they're excited about is doing their own works of reconciliation. Jesus Christ is the one who reconciles. 
We need to apologize and repent to people that we have wounded, but then we need to get our butts back into church. Because that's where we worship Jesus Christ together as a gathered corporate body of worshipers. The last thing that Jesus says is, hey, if you've wronged someone, come to terms quickly. Apologize quickly. Don't allow it to go on and stretch on, especially in areas of money or legal issues. Let's keep reading. Verse 27. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Again, um, what Jesus does is he starts with uh, Old Testament quote, Old Testament law, Exodus twenty fourteen, Deuteronomy five eighteen. These are the ten commandments: you shall not commit adultery. And he says, what matters on the inside is not the act of adultery. What matters on the inside is lust. What matters on the inside is your desire to do it. The word there is pornea in Greek, and it extends to a great number of things, a great number of immoral acts, not just heterosexual adultery. So some practical applications, Jesus is going right after the heart of people. Matthew uses the word heart 16 times in his gospel, and it's kind of this collective seat of the mind, soul, and emotions. And oftentimes we can just think of this heart as this like emotional spot. For Matthew, it's, it's where they all collide. And Jesus is going after their heart. He's going after the heart and what he's trying to tell these people is throw away the things in your life that cause scandal. That's what the word there means, makes to make you stumble, causing you to sin. It's scandal. Throw away the things in your life that are causing scandal. They're a stumbling block. You can be holding too tightly to things that are causing you to stumble, and you should throw it away. Again, Jesus is going right after their hearts because see, our hearts do lots of things in secret. Our hearts do lots of things in secret and externally, we don't think God sees and for sure people don't see. And God says, I do see. Throw away these things that are causing you to stumble in your heart internally. You see, I think people love the idea of Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, 
You can love the idea of me, but your body can be going to hell because I'm not number one in your heart. I am not internally seated on the throne of your heart because other secret things are. Throw them away. Jesus moves right from adultery to divorce. They're pretty related. Verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 24.1. What matters on the inside for men at this time, and men were the only ones allowed to write certificates of divorce. So Jesus is going after the men. He's saying, you are divorcing your wives because you think they're a liability. You've not wanted the responsibility and you want to get rid of the liability. There's some practical applications here. You see it in the Old Testament marriage it was a contractual obligation. The man would provide, protect the woman. Um, in the Greek world, it was this idea of patronage. The man would be a patron to his wife, to servants, to freedmen, and they'd kind of work for him. They'd fall under his patronage. In both cases, though, what had become commonplace for the Greeks and for the Jews was, oh, this patronage, this contract, I'm tired of it. Oh, in the Old Testament, there's this provision that Moses says that says if we're, if, if we're displeased by our wife, we can get rid of the contract. We can divorce her. Jesus goes right at the patriarchy, right at male-led religiosity. And he says, stop writing divorce certificates and causing apostasy. God was mad at Israel in Isaiah 50 because Israel was writing their own divorce certificates. And Jesus is trying to have men come to the inside of the law and see that the law is based on covenant love. And covenant love does not write divorce certificates. It's love. When you love someone, you freely take on all of the liability. You don't try to get rid of it. Let's keep talking about vows and oaths. Matthew 5, 33 through 37. Again, you've heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths before the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven because it is God's throne or by the earth because it is his footstool or by Jerusalem because of the city of the great king. Neither should you swear by your head because you cannot make a single hair white or black. But let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more than that is from the evil one. Jesus is reaching back into Leviticus 19, 12, Numbers 32. And what matters on the inside this time, it isn't this external oath. It's integrity and honesty in your innermost being. 
Your word should be the sufficient guarantor of all you do. If you say something, then you'll be there. You'll do it. Some practical applications. Um, Jesus, I think, comes back to this idea of oath-taking because in that time, uh, especially in the ancient world, you would oftentimes swear by your deity. If you're going to do something, you'd, you'd swear by um, the God that you serve. The only problem with this, at least for Jews, was that the name of God was holy. So you can't really utter the name of God or swear by the name of God. It's too holy. And so they would start taking oaths by uh, heaven, by earth by Jerusalem, by the Holy Temple. And what Jesus is doing in this passage, he's saying, don't you get it? God created the earth. It's his footstool, is what the psalmist said. Don't you get it? God created the heavens. It's where he rules and reigns from. Don't you get it? Jerusalem is the holy city. All things are infused with the holiness of God. So stop taking oaths. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Stop swearing to things and vowing to things about you can't, that you can't even control. I'm not going to lie, guys. I had my 36th birthday a few weeks ago. There's a, a few gray hairs. I'm trying really hard. I'm like, no, I don't want them. I can't control them. And God says that you can't even control the biological processes happening in your body. Why are you swearing by them? Will you allow integrity into your inner being? And I think the reason why Jesus is hitting this is he wants us to flourish. And when we don't have integrity in our inner beings, we cannot flourish. There might be even something now that, that it's just been eating at you. You know that you've been dishonest. You know that, that you've got to get it out. You know that you should probably say something. You know you're not flourishing because you've covered something up. You've put it into a secret place. What God is saying is he wants integrity. He wants you to flourish. So my challenge for you is who you need to tell. Let's look at these last two portions of the law that Jesus teaches us. Starting in verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Again, Jesus is quoting Exodus 21, 24, Deuteronomy 19 and 21. And what matters on the inside is compassion. And Jesus is, is taking the power structures of his day and saying, you unravel those power structures through compassion. And so the practical applications is this. The law was always meant to limit revenge. 
So it wasn't saying an eye for an eye, like someone knocks out your tooth or knocks out your eye, like just make sure that you only get their tooth back or their eye back. It was compassionately lending revenge so that you wouldn't try to take revenge even farther. And so Jesus comes in and starts teaching the Jews about power structures because they were at the bottom of the power structure in the ancient world. Rome was above them. And Rome's law says, if you're a Jew and I'm a Roman soldier, here's my 53 pound pack. Carry it with me for a mile. It's Roman law. I can jeer and make fun of you the whole way. And if you don't carry this pack for me, then I'll whip you and I'll beat you. This is Roman law. And Jesus says, have compassion on that soldier. Walk with him for two miles instead. It's 53 pound pack. It's not that heavy. Where do you have to go? You got to go another mile? Let's go another mile. What? Will we have compassion on the poor in our midst? We have compassion on those who might want to work us to death. We'll be kind to them. What Jesus is doing is he's showing that when you get into the law, compassion actually unravels revenge and retaliation and racism because compassion dethrones those things. Let's read our last section. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. It's a tough close. Jesus quoting from Leviticus 19, 18. What matters on the inside is loving the stranger, loving the foreigner, loving the person unlike you. Loving the person that's not from your same comfortable socioeconomic zone. Loving the, purple that, loving the person that, that doesn't have the same skin tone as you. Loving the person that might have a virus that you don't. And what Jesus is trying to say is when you love and pray towards the stranger in your path, that is actually the path to sonship, to being a son of God. And again, going, going after, I think something that's important, the language is specific. It's, you'll be a son of God. It's not trying to say that you can't be daughters of God. We've brought in our social justice, gender equality thing. It's son of God. And that language is specific and purposeful because sons were given the rights of inheritance. And so if you're part of this mass crowd at the foot of the mountain, and you're a woman, you are excited because now the king is saying that there's a path for you to also have the inheritance and the authority that sons have as well. It's an exciting thing. 
Jesus is meant for this close to be about loving the stranger because he wants for his people to love the nations no matter where they're from. So we, yes, in this moment, we are having border walls and quarantines and no-fly zones, but Jesus Christ wants us to love the nations because they bear the same image and likeness that we do. And he contrasts that with favoritism. See, favoritism is how the world works. You do something for me, I do something for you. Tax collectors in verse 46 know this. Verse 46, don't even the tax collectors do the same? Don't they practice favoritism as well? I think that's such an interesting word choice. Out of nowhere, tax collectors appear. And then I start to remember the Gospel of Matthew, written by Matthew, he was a tax collector. And so Matthew knows exactly how tax collectors operate. He knows exactly who they are. Matthew knows that he's played favorites before. Let's actually flip over a few pages to Matthew 9. This is the call of Matthew. In verse um, 9, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he got up and followed him. While he was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came as guests to eat with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, Jesus said, those who are well don't need a doctor, but the sick do. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, I think Matthew knew what was in the Sermon on the Mount. Not only did the Holy Spirit give him recollection to pen to us this gospel, but I think Matthew was really comfortable following Jesus from a distance. And I think many of us can become very comfortable following Jesus at a distance. And the problem with that is when we follow Jesus at a distance, the law becomes burdensome. The law becomes on the outside. And all the law is doing is showing us how wretched and sinful we are because we know the inside and we know that we have anger and we know that we've lusted and we know that we want to get rid of liability and we know that we struggle to love the stranger. And all of that is revealed to us because the law is on the outside of us. And here Jesus simply says, follow me. Will you come up to the mountain where I sit and I teach you what it looks like to come on to the inside of the law? Because you know what I've done? For you, the law has been that collection agency that's called you when you've got a big bill, you've got a big hospital bill. And the law says, when are you going to pay? You owe it. Services have been rendered. And Jesus comes in and says, I am paying it for you. Here's the confirmation number paid in full. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus from the inside of the law. Jesus brings you grace so that the law on the inside 
can be given by one who's paid the price for you so that you can flourish. And do you know how Matthew knows that? Matthew experienced it. We just read. Jesus said, leave the favoritism of your tax collecting and come follow me, the king who will pay it all for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord. Um, we thank you, God, that you've given us a, a confirmation number that lasts for eternity. You've paid for our sin. You've paid for our debt. Lord, I pray that for people sitting in this room, that was a message of hope that they needed if they've made the decision to follow Jesus Christ in their heart. Lord, for the people in this room who maybe have not yet made that decision, God, I pray that they would they begin to search and seek out what it looks like to make that decision, that they talk to someone to help, but better yet, that they talk to you and invite Jesus Christ to sit on the throne of their heart and teach them truth. Thank you, Father, for teaching us truth. Thank you for f helping us to flourish once again. I pray this in your name, amen.